Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, the keynote address by Professor John Patrick Montagno of the University of Delaware. His paper was entitled Humiliation, Destruction and Death, Violence and Cultural Difference in Tudor and Stuart Ireland. What I want to talk to you about today in this context right, is an attempt to use violence as a sort of text, a text which both settler and native English, Irish, whatever categories we want to use, I use to communicate with each other, especially communicate either their superiority and civility on the one side or their defiance and resistance on the other. Now, before I turn to looking at texts for communication and various kinds of violence, humiliation, destruction, and death, I just want to say that I am going to try, even though most of my talk will be about the Tudor period, to, at the very end, just make a few hints, looking at a couple of examples from 1641, and see if that has something to communicate to us, that violence, right, about a changing nature of Irish identity in that particular moment. Now, before I start, let me just say that in my book, what I tried to argue was simply this, is that the early Tudor colonial strategies, um, civilizing mission, I was going to say plantation policy, I learned to say planting policy now in the early period, were rooted in Renaissance attitudes, or really attitudes from classical antiquity, and in particular from Virgil. The idea that civilization involved dispossessing people, taking over their lands, building cities, building walls, cultivating fields, becoming a settled agricultural society. That is, in short, a vision of civilization that I think informs much of the strategies of the Tudor period. Now, I hope you can imagine why, when they come to Ireland, this idea of a settled agricultural society and nature of civilization, that they very quickly see the Irish in their fairly mobile pastoral society as barbarian, savage, and by definition, disordered, and uncivilized. And so what I hope to show is that culture, the culture that the English are emphasizing, the cultural differences between civility and barbarism or savagery or disorder, right, are going to become a new site of contestation in this period, and that's going to be the focus of at least some of the violence I want to look at today. Now, the early strategies from 1515, from Henry VIII, from the time of the Reformation in particular, they don't go so well. They find that assimilating the Irish, getting them to adopt civility, not really happening in that period. So that, I think, brings more and more attention to Irish culture, to the savagery and the barbarism of Irish culture, and eventually to the idea that it has to be basically eliminated in order to introduce civility into Ireland by the end of the century, if not before. Now, one of the things that I think is important to note before I turn to the texts is that from the very beginning, even in the surrender and regret sort of papers that we have, right, that there's also always little cultural aspects included in it, right? That they will live in houses, they will speak English, they will cultivate their fields, they will build fences, they'll pass their land on by primogeniture, they'll cut their hair, they'll remove their mustaches, on and on and on it goes in there. But most importantly, right, that these aspects, these cultural aspects, and especially the material cultural aspects are going to be a very important site 
for contestation, for violence, and of course for communication, as I hope to say it. Now, recently, I think some Irish scholars have tried to play down right, the amount of violence that takes place in the Tudor and even in the Stuart centuries. Right? That there's been a great deal more cooperation, coexistence, ecumenical sort of neighborliness in Ireland, and that it wasn't constantly violence, destruction, hostility, brutality, etc. Now, I don't say there's constant warfare going on, but I do think that there is a good deal of both small-scale, localized, as well as grander conflict that goes on. And this conflict is going to be the source of many of the texts I'm going to try to read today as a form of communication in there. Now, from the time of Foucault, if not uh, before, people have tried to use pardons, executions, etc., right, demonstrate that as, as instruments for communicating state power. But I think the problem in Tudor Ireland in particular is that the illegitimacy of the state in Ireland, as viewed by many of the natives, means that these demonstrations of state power, executions, public humiliations, etc., right, might also take the form, right, by the Irish, that they can be used as resistance and defiance. Now, yes, there's a lot of violence that's simply retributive in nature, killing, beating people up, etc. Right? But I want to view some of these texts. Right, some of these examples of violence right, as ideas that are clearly intended to communicate both cultural difference, superior, superiority, civility, or conversely, resistance and defiance to that very same thing. Now, Kevin Sharp has for many years and in many books and in many pages right, tried to persuade us right, that there are a variety of texts beyond the simple verbal texts. Right? Also, I think that text, seeing these as things that can be read, seeing these as forms of communication, that means that it brings debate or discourse into at least some type of primitive public sphere, and I look forward to tomorrow afternoon's paper on the emergence of a public sphere. I'm sure I will learn a great deal from it. At least a type of public sphere where the discourse exists, where ordinary people, people who are normally intended right, to remain silent, to be excluded, from politics, right, are suddenly given an opportunity to be involved. Or the use of public media, from proclamations to public executions, etc., also sees the state, at least, as presenting messages to people, but presenting messages to what is increasingly an uncontrollably general audience, right? They take different meanings from the message being presented. Now, executions, public punishments, right? They are, at least in some people's view, meant as a display of power, a display of community consensus, even of unity. But I hope to show that much of the violence in Ireland is viewed as inappropriately excessive, right? as often random, as inflicted by outsiders, right? who very often undermine the legitimacy of power and the state they are trying to enforce. And also, that once a pattern of violence right, is established, right, violence is a form of communication, in this case of state power or civility, right, it becomes available to everyone, including the Irish natives themselves. Right? It makes violence an instrument of continual struggle and contestation. So, for the purposes today, right, seeing violence as a text allows us to see death, destruction, and humiliation right, as a type of dialogue, a dialogue between increasingly hostile interlocutors on the two sides. Right? Now, once what I'm going to call cultural destruction is accepted as something that's as significant as massacres or brutality or atrocities, right, as essential in replacing barbarian society, right, then we'll find that much of the violence is directed right, at signs, at symbols, at images, 
Okay, will be just as important as other things. Now, images, shrines, relics, they're gonna become obvious targets in this logic of elimination. Fences, fields, permanent houses, roads, bridges, similarly become objects and obvious targets in the logic of elimination. Now, I know there's some debate recently, or not really recently, but over iconoclasm or the extent thereof in the years immediately following the Reformation in Ireland. But I think it's fair to say that castles, churches, monasteries, right, all these type of material cultures, right, they are both raised or at least culturally destroyed, many of them simply by being converted into houses or other objects of civilized material culture. Right, for example, bells, candles, jewels are often melted down, used as roofs in new-style English houses as early as the 1530s and 40s. Right? Similarly, the bells, candles, jewels are simply stolen, carried off right, to decorate new homes, most famously the new house of the Lord Deputy Lord Grey when he takes over the house of the Fitzgeralds at Maynooth. Now, what an example we have of Lord Grey in Ireland. Right? is he very early right, demonstrates right, a hostility to what used to be a very privileged group in medieval, early modern society, and that is the clergy. Here we see the respect for the clergy being rejected in lieu of cultural displaying. Right? We commanded to be hanged in his habit and so to remain upon the gallows for a mere of all others, his brother, to live truly. Right, another example of Lord Grey, which is like persecuting and banishing the orders, beheading the prior and several other Franciscans before destroying their friary in Monaghan. Hmm? So here, once again, clerical privilege right, is going to be replaced right, by a very conscious decision to communicate right, their new status, to use them as puissant examples of state power. Right? In Ireland, there's no longer a place for monks and friars any longer. In Ireland, it seems clear the state is going to punish, to torture, to humiliate, and even execute them like common criminals. In Ireland, civilization is going to be visited on the clergy in the same way as it is upon the laity and common criminals. Now, a better example, I think, of the violence in the communication takes place at Menuth. Right? Very famously, right, as David Edwards has shown us, right, at the fall of Maynooth, right? there is a traitor he's let in. There's a promise of a great pardon to them. Once Stephington gets in, he massacres most of the garrisons, men, women, child, innocents. Now, there's evidence of garrisons being massacred very often in Europe at this time, but often the innocents are spared, right? not here. But more importantly, right, he sets aside right, 25 of the gunners. Right? The castle falls on the 23rd of March. He carries them over for the 25th of March, which I'm sure you know right, is Lady Day, the Feast of the Annunciation, one of the most holiest days in the Catholic calendar, also New Year's Day in the old calendar. Right? And on that day, he takes up 25 of them, 25, 25th, right, before the gate of the castle, having the head in one hand, the verse of the headed heads of the principals incontinently were put upon the turrets of the castle. They're staked on the castle, again, as an example. Right? Now, I think it's fair to say that this is obviously done, A, to humiliate the Fitzgerald, Silken Thomas in particular, right, by the fall of his house, by the massacre of the garrison, and by the staking of the heads of his 25 most sort of advanced gunners in his forces. Right? Also, though, it makes plain right, that the new year is going to introduce perhaps a new order. It's going to introduce a novel and more meaningful type of violence into Ireland. But this, I think, is going to demonstrate that there's going to be a demand, a necessity, right, for a new and perhaps more appropriate response from natives who are having this new type of violence visited upon them. In other words, unremitting malice, an endless circle of justifications for brutality 
it's beginning with the Pardon of Maynooth. The Pardon of Maynooth in the state papers, there's always English officers joking about, oh, I visited the Pardon of Maynooth on the oh, I did a pardon. <laughs> it's terribly funny. Um, in there, I think it's a big joke. We offer no pardon, they should be excused them all. <laughs> Good times. Um, now, in there. Now, another example, right? The hostility, I think, to material culture, right? One of the Amors, the leader of the Amors, he's captured. Right? He's led around his own territory before his own people, right? In a handlock, right? Humiliation, right? Visit upon them. Right? But then, his sons, they do not cease to commit invasion to all the collaborating Omor tenants, burning, destroying, and breaking down the ditches and fastness of their town. Now, they're not just visiting on English, some of them are, or on just solely settlers, also on collaborators with them. Most importantly, they don't say that they go in, kill them, wipe them out, torture them, light them on fire, no. They're focused on burning and destroying and breaking down ditches and fastness of their towns. Symbols of an agricultural, of a settled society, the defenses thereon. The ditches are for the most part built not so much to keep people out, but to keep them from stealing your cattle and driving them out and away from you, stealing their cows in there. So here we see that I think the Omors, at least the Irish, the natives themselves, they recognize the cultural significance of material culture. They recognize it as an important symbol of English civility, of the new society that's being enforced upon them. And I think that the English emphasis on cultural difference is going to help focus the resistance. It's going to influence the choice of targets. It's going to shape the violence and defiance in the years to come. Now, another famous example, many of you know, Shane O'Neill, Shane the Proud, right, in the 1560s. He's been causing trouble. He's been defying the English. He's been manipulating the English. He's been cultivating some fields, not cultivating others, sometimes dressing in English habits, sometimes refusing to do so. But in the end, we see a proclamation denouncing Shane O'Neill, in which he sees violence both as a text, but also the importance of performance in their mind. Shane O'Neill's head body, or proof of having killed him, was careful to include his symbolically provocative act of entering the English pale with banners displayed as an open enemy, traitor, and rebel. Now, here we see his displaying his banners, a very clearly performative act. And that's intended to communicate both to his Irish followers as well as to officials in Dublin and London his rejection of their authority. Now, it's also his performative act, his defiance of English, I think also going to shape the accounts of his death thereafter. Eventually, of course, you'll probably know he goes to visit with some Scots who he thinks are going to be his friends. Turns out they're not. They hew him to pieces, even burying him, wrapped in a current shirt, and so without all honor. After a few days, he was taken up again by Captain Pierce, who is an agent of Sir Henry Sidney. Right? And his head was sundered from the body and sent for the Lord Deputy who caused the same to be set upon a stake or pole on top of the castle of Dublin. Now, I think you can see here, Henry Sidney, someone whose name will come up a few more times in the course of this paper, right? His triumphalist humiliation of Shane O'Neill is going to contribute to, I think, a very important and growing trend of public, symbolic, ritualized displays of enemies, enemies brought low, of violence used to show and degrade, right? And it's going to be used by both sides in the conflict. It's not hard to figure out what's going on here, and of course, to visit upon your enemies in turn. 
Now, Herr Morgan, he has written about this topic in some places, right? He says the transmissions of ideas are not only multilingual in Ireland, but of course, multimedia. Right? A spiking of Shane's head. Right? It's a grisly demonstration of power when it comes incredibly common in this century. Right? Of course, natives are going to find it simple enough to develop their own set of symbolic actions to communicate their defiance and their disdain for the authority of the state. Indeed, humiliation is going to become increasingly, increasingly important in Tudor England. Lita Tate, right? she's written about the importance of the appropriate death or, of course, the inappropriateness of the death of one's enemies. Sees it as hugely important right, for establishing the justice or, conversely, the iniquity of one's particular cause in there. Right? So no spectacle right, of power, no admonitory display right, is going to be able to impress the Irish sufficiently because I think they see it as rooted in injustice of the state, right? not injustice. Right? So while attacks on settlers, destruction of their possessions, the ruining of their material culture can be taken as evidence that they see their cause as entirely just and their violence as entirely necessary, if not justified. Nicholas Candy, he's written similarly that there was an incipient political consciousness in this period. And he accounts for, and I quote, the morbid concern with the ritual humiliation performed by the Irish on the corpses of soldiers killed in battle. Rituals that were quite obviously in direct imitation of English practices. Right? So in other words, the English attempt to communicate their power, civility, superiority right, is being clearly understood by the Irish and responded to in kind. Now, while it may be clear the violence can speak volumes, can see that both sides are increasingly determined to communicate with violence, at the same time, spectacles and rituals are intended to publicize defeat and submission of the Irish, the elimination of Irish culture. And this is all part of, I think, the English strategy to make own the inexorable advance of civility. But at the same time, the natives, the Irish, who are having much of this violence inflicted upon them, right? they willingly accept the importance of such actions, and they increasingly are going to rely on them as well to contest this cultural strategy right, of eliminating their culture. Now, here's an example. The Butler Revolt right, rises up in the Midlands, right? spreads into much of Munster. Right? Now, the Butlers, the Duke of Ormond, the leader of the Butler family, he's someone who is going along with much of what's going on, but he has some cadet members of his family who do not agree. They were collaborating with the English, who see their own particular position being threatened right, by this civilizing strategy, by the introduction of primogeniture coming in there, which they will, of course, get little or nothing. Right? Now, in this revolt, right, we see the hostility to the English and many settlers. Right? Some of them, right, they rise up, they're led about in halters. Right? They're dragged through their own cultivated fields. Their fences and their homes are destroyed. Now, here again, not that many of them are murdered or killed. Some are stripped of their clothes. They're led about. They are humiliated. Right? But more important are the symbols of material culture, the symbols of English civility that are the objects of much of the violence and the hostility in there. Right? Now, this is not going to be the last time that material culture is going to be the target of violence rather than people. However, the spectacle and ritualized violence against English garments, right? seen in this example here, right? where it has dead men's bodies to be stripped out of their English garments and their holes and doubles, being stuffed with straw, he would set up as marks for his current to throw their darts at. Now, these are people who've been killed in battle. Right? 
Right? But he takes right, one of the most important signs of English civility. Right? Their English garments, their hose, and their doublets. These are set up as targets. They're used for target practice. Right? So once again, right, material culture, the things that are being forced upon the English, English style, upon the Irish, excuse me, English style dress. They are going to become right, key elements in the violence here. Right? They are cultural signifiers, and I think cultural signifiers, the objects of colonial strategies, are increasingly right, the objects of the violence, the language of cultural contestation in these periods. Now, in the same years, let me turn to someone who I call the great communicator in violence, and that's Humphrey Gilbert. Right? In these same years, right, he uses violence against everyone. He uses it indiscriminately, and he does so on purpose, right, to communicate the terror he wants the Irish to feel. Right? He wants to create famine wherever possible right? by killing all the people around him, by spoiling and wasting and burning, and burning all he can. It is nothing of the enemies in safety which he could possibly waste or consume. Freely admitting that killing any and all civilians by the sword was the way to kill the men of war by famine. This comes from the book, of course, in praise of Humphrey Gilbert, not uh, from an alternative or Irish source at all. That's one of his biographers. Well, oh, this is great. Um, Sir Humphrey. Now, Sir Humphrey, the communicator. He's using famine to undermine support for the rebels, but he soon is going to perfect the use of humiliation and death as a medium for communication. Famously, right? he has the heads of all those whatsoever they were, which were killed in the day, should be cut off from their bodies. So whatsoever, that means leaders, women, anyone. Right? They should be cut off from their bodies and brought to the place where he encamped at night. And should there be laid on the ground at each side of the way leading to his own tent, so that none could come into his tent for any cause. But commonly he must pass through a land of heads, which he, Gilbert, used uh, to run. So he's doing this so anyone who comes to him with a petition to submit, to surrender, to ask a favor, and has to walk to this arcade of severed heads, right, of their friends, neighbors, relatives, whoever it may be, staring up at them, the maw, their grisly faces staring up at him. Right? Well, finally, another example, and again, it's this kind of activity that gets him promoted, gets him knighted um, for his troubles here. But I think one good example, he's attuned to right, the sensibilities of the local Irish. They, I'll leave this one off for a bit here, not the next one, right? As they carry on the these parts for hanging, I pointed to him his right arm, first cut off, and afterwards to be half-hanged, and then quartered him. Right? So he's figuring out what the Irish hate most, and of course then imposing upon them with a few cherries on top, I suppose, at the end by having them not only hang their arm cut off, not the arm he used to wield his sword, and then of course quartered and stuck up somewhere for all to see. So Gilbert is not alone, believe me, in his emphasis on the role of spectacle, the significance of imagery and display for communicating. But it's these types of public displays he uses, this reliance on a primitive public sphere that makes clear how difficult it's going to be for people, even the state, even Humphrey Gilbert, to control this particular discourse. How easily ritualized or communicative violence might be taken up and used by the Irish themselves. And I want to turn to a few examples of the Irish on their way. Now, a good example is the Burks, the two sons of the Earl of Clanricard. Now, after the arrest of their father, they rise up in anger um, at the insults of their father. They return to Athenry, which they'd already attacked in the previous months. And then Sir Henry Sidney writes this account, right? That they beat away the masons and other laborers which were working in the wall, appointed by me to be made in April last, and sought for the stones whereupon the royal arms were cut, 
in order to have broken that, swearing that none such should stand in any wall there. And now, like Sydney, they are well aware right, of the importance, perhaps, of architecture right, as an important canvas for communication in this period. Another aspect of material culture, one that includes the royal arms. Right? So they were very careful right, in this assertion right, of cultural violent communication right, that they demonstrate how easily right, this discourse, how easily violence in discourse right, can be taken up and used by the Irish in turn. Right? They're forming a discourse that will become increasingly public and increasingly difficult for the government, for the state, for officials to try to control. Right? Now, the Lord definitely eventually tracks them down. He actually gets their father to hand them over. Right? He then takes them to Galway, where he has them publicly rebuked. Very important that they're publicly rebuked. Right? They have to make a submission to him on their knees in St. Nicholas Church in Galway. He then is nice enough to accept their public submission. Right? But their public submission includes an oath, never again to cross the Shannon. And also, and this was something demanded by Elizabeth in particular, right? to repair the walls by them spoiled and defaced, a tactic similar to our earlier insistence, right? that the fathers of the disturbers of the peace had to carry stones and mortar to the building up of the Queen's Majesty's houses in these parts. Right? So I see this right? as a perfect example. Right? Uh, how easily the state could lose control of the theater of justice and punishment, right? and more importantly, how easily the Irish could take it up themselves right? by eliminating these walls, by attacking the royal arms, etc., and making speeches how they're not going to stand in any wall in this area. Right? Indeed, one of the most important things is right, showed with the, the Burks, who months later appear on the banks of the Shannon pointedly shaking off and cutting in pieces our English garments upon the River Shannon, saying that those should be their pledge for remaining east of the Shannon. In other words, they are defying their oath, they are defying their English authority, and they're making very clear right, their rejection right, of English civility, English clothes, English culture, by not only taking off their garments, but cutting them into little pieces and about throwing them in the river, people cheering wildly. Sounds like a good party. Um, very fun. Sounds like Temple Bar tonight, perhaps, um, in there. Now, around the same time, the Brooks are doing this, this is 1572-73, right? In those same years, Sir Thomas Smith, Secretary of State, theorist on colonialism, an old Athenian, a good friend of William Cecil, right? He has a great idea of planting people in the arts. He has the real inconvenient problem of an illegitimate son. So, oh, brilliant, stick him in the arts, get him some land, make him a landowner in there, right? Unfortunately, Sir Thomas Smith, right, his son, ended up being murdered by an Irishman in his own household, then boiled and fed to the dogs. And this really gave the Irishman great cause of rejoicing um, in this period. Right? Now, years later, Camden, right, in his history, right, he will write that Nicholas Maldon will eventually hunt down Smith's murderer, slew him likewise, and so left him to the wolves' jaws to be devoured and eaten. Now, I take Camden's likewise to show that contemporaries, as well as the analysts he's writing a few years later, clearly grasp the significance of violence as a means of expression, and it's neither mindless nor random. Malby's violent response was both appropriate and it was a means to dramatize official power. It was an act that was extremely visible, apparently obvious, entirely unambiguous. In other words, I think he's probably saying that English lives, sacrosanct and idealized, precious, Irish, perhaps less so in there. Now, a final example from Tudor Ireland to return to the 1640s. Right? And that's the death of the two generations of O'More leaders, Rory O'More and his son, Oni McRory O'More. Right? 
Right? Now, Patricia Palmer, she writes of the importance of displays of state violence through the spiking of heads and other body parts right, on castles and walls around the country. She says it was intended to represent the amputation of the old order, its defunct extremities set out as mutilated trophies to proclaim the triumph of the new. A clear example of how body parts can be used to communicate a very definite message. Now, a recognition right, of this is seen and the losses suffered by Rory Ode's followers in these years, right? The people, the Irish, they do not want right, the English to communicate the end of the old order in the mutilation thereof, right? And this one, more, more, the rebel's body, though dead, was so well attended and carried away as it was the cause of the death of a good many men on both sides, yet carried away it was, carried away it was, right? So Rory Ode's followers, they are willing to sacrifice many of their own men, killing many English in the process as well, in an attempt, in this case a successful attempt, and to save their leader's body from the abattoir of English justice in this period. They want to avoid, right, even though he has his head lost and stuck on Dublin Castle. Right? They do not want his body to be quartered, chopped up, and placed around various parts of Ireland or Dublin Castle or Dublin itself in there. Also, the Irish are going to show themselves equally able of expressing their resistance right, to English attacks on their body. Right? His son, Oney McRory, years later, right? His men, once he is slain on the field of battle, fearing his sex should come into the Lord Deputy's hands, willed it to be cut off presently after his death and buried to keep it from the gates of Dublin Castle. Right? So they themselves are going to behead their own leader to keep his head from being staked like his fathers had been, to be used as an example. And there's a couple of very important Irish poems, which I don't quote today, which talk about seeing the heads of their leaders stuck in the castle, how sad they are, how... Um, important it is to the Irish right, to see their leaders humiliated in this way to do it. Right? So the affronts to images of authority are now being matched by Irish resistance to having their leaders' heads displayed. In this case, extending to a willingness to chop off the head themselves, to hide it, to bury it even, right? to conceal the head from their enemies. Each side able to grasp what discouraged or offended its enemies most and try to either inflict it upon them or to, sp or to spare them from doing the same to their own. Now, and what time remains to me? I just want to turn briefly to 1641. A couple of examples. I heard some er great ones earlier this morning about attacks on women in 1641. How there's increasingly there's tropes. One thing about, I think is clear about the depositions. There tends to be many, 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 many of the same stories, many of the same kind of attacks. It seems like every pregnant Protestant in Ireland had their baby ripped out of their body somehow um, in these years. Right? But I want to look at some of the depositions from the outbreak, at least in Ulster in 1641, to look for clues about the emergence, right? uh, perhaps a new type of Irish identity, one that's no longer simply uncivilized, savage, wild, and barbarian, but one that's evolving slowly but surely into something more strictly popish and anti-Christian. Now, despite the emperor efforts of Sir John Temple, to detail the atrocities of 1641. A closer examination of some of these documents, some of these texts, as I keep calling them, reveals that violence, once more, can be seen as a medium or a text for the expression of eloquent and readily comprehensible assertions of difference. Also, I think some of these texts from the depositions and a few others that I found, over here, right? They might be able to communicate something to us about the changing attitudes in Ireland. Now, clearly, after the defeat in the Nine Years' War, the death of Elizabeth, the accession of James, 
the flight of the earls, the plantation, the plant, well, it is not, the plantation of Ulster um, at last. Right? It seems that defeat for many of the Irish is total. Right? Many, at least, of the Irish are forced to accept a new world order. Right? Indeed, right? one man who will, in the 1620s, eventually turn out to be a member of the Confederates. Right? He argues that the colonies, setting aside their different tenets and matters of religion, were as perfectly incorporated and firmly knit as frequent marriages, daily ties of hospitality, and the mutual bond between landlord and tenant could unite any people. Right? There's this idea that in the 20s and 30s, the war has been won, Ireland has been at least, if not civilized, settled. That the great war is over, the violence is toned down, people are coexisting, there's an ecumenical flavor to people's willingness to act as neighbors. Many people comment on such accommodation. They comment on the happy coexistence. But I think that religious and cultural differences that are acceptable and accommodated in times of stability quickly come to the fore once the times of uncertainty and instability return. Now, I find it remarkable that three of the great leaders in 1641, leaders in three counties, right, are members of parliament. So these are guys who are you know, getting elected, being property owners, sitting in the Irish parliament, yet they are going to be the leaders in, 16, in October of 1641. Right? Even more remarkable, right? Sir Fellow O'Neill, one of these members of parliament and leaders, right? he opens a report basically taking Charlemont Castle how does he take a castle? He shows up with those men who are mistaken for dinner guests and invited in. Come on in. Hey, it's your fellow. Welcome. Right? He comes in to dinner, takes the castle. The outbreak has begun. Now, writing on a different issue about French religious riots and sectarian violence, Mark Greengrass, right? he notes that such popular violence, what it does is very often give a voice to the voiceless. Right? For today's purposes, I think we might read this as a type of text to find clues in the grievances of the Irish insurgents in 1641. And again, Temple, Henry Jones, and many of those who are going to follow them in the 40s and 50s writing about this. Try to establish the Irish rejection of civility, their hatred of all things English, the hatred of the English, the hatred of true religion, hate, 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 hate. And their idea is, of course, to extirpate the entire community. And so they exaggerate much of the violence, much of the death, much of the brutality, much of the execution. Again, hundreds of thousands of Protestants massacred, apparently, when there weren't that many in the country to begin with. Now, I want to read this text, right, to look for what some of the grievances of 1641 might have been. And I think that much of the violence, at least at the outbreak, can be read to reveal both economic and religious complaints. These are portrayed by Temple and the others, of course, as nothing more than evidence of the inherent cruelty, bloodlust, brutality of Catholicism. But one thing that I think is too often downplayed in the 20s and 30s in particular of the preceding 1641 is the complicity of the Reformed Church with the plantations, that the Reformation is being advanced right alongside the plantations. And that means that the income, the money, the wealth of the clergy is switching hands into men, remember the Church of Ireland. But more importantly, after the plantation and confiscations, after the flight of the earls, that church lands, right? Quite a bit of church land is now being handed over to Church of Ireland men. Right? So I think there's an element where there are economic grievances that are linked to religious complaints in this very period. Right? Also, 
the plans for the Ulster Plantation were to remove all the Irish, bring in the settlers, bring in the Scots, it's going to be civilized, going to be ordered, going to be wonderful. But of course, they never could get enough people. And that goes for every plantation from the time when it was just planting and leeching off it, all the way into Ulster and beyond. Right? So many Irish will remain amongst the English. Right? But nonetheless, I think it's to say that they underwent a descent in status and a tendency that's conditioned by the amount of settlement that goes on around them. So even the actual remain who are good neighbors, who are coexisting, who are cooperating, who are friends, right, still they harbor a good deal of grievance because of their descent and social status. Now, one, I think, good example to demonstrate the linkage of economic and religious grievance right, is that early on, in depositions, but also in letters that are not depositions. Right? There is account after account right, of people searching out in Protestant houses, right? records, right? records of debt. Right? They are attacking the clergy, but they attack the clergy in large part to see if they have records, because the clergy hold a good deal of debt from the natives in there. Right? Also, it is the church and the Protestant clergy who are involved in many of the economic and cultural changes. Right? Many of the attacks are their servants over masters. So it's the inequality in the society that's been introduced that often right, proves to be an object of the violence and attacks early on. It motivates many of the attacks. In other words, the Irish are able to express some of their economic grievances as well as religious grievances right, through their actions and not through their words. They attack landlords. And again, here he is, Sir Phelim O'Neill. Once again, much of his property is attacked by some other Catholic insurgents. And that's because he rents to Protestants. He rents to settlers. He rents to improving tenants. And again, the very people who are bringing in new culture, new ways, new land use in there. There's a report that fellow O'Neill's the nurse to his own family, along with 20 adults and 12 children, are killed because of their collaboration with Sir Fellow in, I guess we would say, English ways. So while there is a good deal of violence, there is some murder, there's lots of stripping of people, etc. Right? Most of the violence in 1641, at the very beginning, right, is not random and it's not murder. There are some, of course. Right? But the rebels, they are looking for legal documents kept in settler houses. They're looking for leases. They're looking for documents that show the granting of title to farms. Right? And these are taken and destroyed along with the bonds and many other documents with testimony of debts. Right? So these records of debts, right, they're sought out. They're destroyed in thousands of houses and raids early on. Even debt collectors themselves are singled out in this period. Right? One of them, right, even as report, he's fearing his head should come into the Lord. Oh, where did he come from? I went the wrong way, excuse me. Right? He had bills taken by those that robbed him and torn in pieces of many oaths and testations of the rebels. There should never be debt paid in this kingdom anymore. Right? They are wanting to eliminate having to pay debts to what they see as settlers who come there who have dispossessed them and are now right, taking their money away as well in rents and other forms in there. Right? Now, while the violence, right? and again, I don't deny that the 1641 witnesses stripping and threats torture, murder. Many of the people put in stocks, stripped, right? They want them to confess where their money is. Right? You'll stay there, we'll light your toes on fire. Tell us where you've hidden all your money. That's what they're looking for in there. Right? But I think 
I can make a case still that the violence was clearly targeting the records of social and economic innovations. It's communicating this violence, it's revealing economic grievances and the hostility to change in general. Now, one more particular example, group of examples, right? and that has to do with Catholic attacks on Protestants. Right? Now, again, there are murders. Right? There's not nearly as many as they are accounted. Right? Most of the things that are attacked, most of the violence is aimed at Protestant religious symbols. Most importantly, vernacular Bibles and the Book of Common, Book of Common Prayer. They are the focus of many attacks. Right? In one instance, the Book of Common Prayer and a church in Armagh, all of them were torn up and put in a pile and pissed on by a particular insurgent who said, I would do worse if I could. Apparently, he couldn't. Right? At Belturbet, they see Bibles and Protestant books burnt at the Margaret Cross. And again, violence, humiliation, destruction. Right? It rarely is resulting in death in many of these instances. Much of what it communicates may be seen as hostility to the signs of religious differences. Might be aimed at what be seen as marks of impurity within what would be otherwise a Catholic community. It might be seen as a desire, of course, to cleanse the community of the religious contamination of heretics and heresy in general. Now, Despite what I often read and seem to think are many claims about the theological ignorance and superstition on the part of the uneducated Catholic masses, they show in 1641 and the years to follow, I think, considerable and eloquent insights when assaulting symbols of the Reformed religion. Okay. Um, did I go the wrong way again? Yes. All right. Their actions against the persons as well as the clergy as of the Protestant religion within their power. Not only while lives lapse of after death, digging some of them out of their graves, cutting them in pieces, casting them in ditches, defiling the church, setting up the abominable idol of the mass instead of God's true worship and service, and in scornful and reproachful manner, trampling underfoot the Holy Bible and disdainfully burning it. This, I think, shows. Right? People are directing their violence at objects, not at persons. Right? They're digging people up, yes. They're clearing out right, graveyards. They're removing the pollution right, of the heresy from them. Right? But it's not against foreigners. It's not against English. Right? It's against the, pro the polluting Protestant worship on the people that support it. So, contra Sir John Temple, Henry Jones, and others. Right? The venom of the rebels is directed primarily against symbols of Protestantism. The traditional places of Christian worship are recovered by Roman Catholics right, for their own use. They're cleansed of contaminating heresy. The ritual desecration of Bibles, prayer books, the exhumation of Protestant corpses from graves in the confines of the church. All of these, right, seen as the same example. They took poor men's Bibles, which he found in a boat, and cut them in pieces and cast them into the fire with these words, that they would deal in like manner with all Protestant and Puritan Bibles. Again, not all Protestants, not all Puritans, Protestant and Puritan Bibles. Again, the symbols right, of their heretical religion. The symbols of the religion that is, of course, seem to be collaborating with the dispossession and plantation policy. Right. Now, more than anything else, right, I think this is the message that the violence reveals. Right? It was very much part of the cultural conflicts of the Tudor period. Right? And the humiliation, the destruction, and death in the 1640s may well help to understand right, what I see as the emergence of a more particular form of identity, a more particular form of Irish identity right, in the course of the Civil War and after. It's an identity that's slowly but surely becoming not savage, not uncivilized, not wild, not Irish, but almost exclusively popish and consequently entirely irredeemable. Thank you.